0: are now tuning in to the Mind Body podcast, where you will go behind the scenes of how the mind of successful entrepreneurs, experts, and true leaders really works. Here you won't just listen, you will understand the guiding principles to create massive change in any area of your life. And of course, this podcast is hosted by the strong, lovely, with the sexy Jewish accent, Lidor Dayan! Bro, pozhal dami i gaspata. S Lidor Dayan. Or in other words, welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Mind Body podcast. I'm your host, Lidor Dayan, and in this episode, I interviewed Meno Henselmans from Beijingbodybuilding.com. Meno is an online physique coach, fitness model and a scientific hater. He is one of the leaders of the evidence-based fitness movement. As you will see, he knows what he talks about. So, without further ado, let's begin the interview.
1: Hello Meno, how is it going? It's great. Yeah, how are you doing? Very, very well. Uh, thank you for being in my podcast. I'm really honored. And uh, I would like to in start uh, with a little bit of your background, your story. So tell us a little bit about your personal story and how uh, your fitness journey began.
2: Okay, sure.
3: My uh, story, I guess, is that I uh, started off working as a business consultant, um, which is also what my main education was in, economics, statistics, and sciences, and I applied to... Uh, Advanced physical data analysis uh, during my job as a consultant, but I found that it was more the career path that was expected of me and the prestigious thing to do, and not really uh, what what had always been my passion, which is uh, fitness, exercise science, and nutrition. And so I started for myself and I developed over time the patient bodybuilding method, and it quickly grew from there, and now we're um, an eight. Person company not including um, administrative people and uh, it's going really well
2: I uh, do a lot of coaching uh, practically full-time and I host uh, the patient personal training
3: certification program uh, which is an online certification program that basically uh, provides an alternative to the more you know do you even lift kind of mainstream Mm -hmm. uh, programs
2: that are out there
1: and when you just began and uh You convert the consulting to actually be and take uh, the fitness into a career. So, what was in your mind? Like, uh, is it good? Uh, Am I going to do it? Like, was was uh, any doubts in your mind?
3: Oh yeah, there were. It was a very gradual process. There's this uh, idea that uh, people have, you know, they sort of got this fantasy about what it's like to be. Uh, PT or whatever they want to be musician or whatever their dream is and then one day you just quit their job and start working on their new thing you know that that wasn't at all how it was it was a gradual process that occurred over uh, basically more than a full year uh, if I remember correctly and I, I did a lot of research on what made people happy um, and one of those aspects was um, asking yourself, myself, what uh, you think about your life if you're on your deathbed, if you have any regrets. And that was a particularly strong thing for me to do, um, or strong incentive for me, because um, it was very clear to me that if I continued on that career path until you know, retirement, uh, I would not be satisfied with my life, I'm pretty sure. I was already pretty sure of that, and so I I sought to change it, and I did that very gradually. Uh, The startup also was not like I just quit my job and then started the new thing. No, at some point I just had two full-time gigs, Uh, I was already writing for T Nation uh, when I was still um, at least part-time working as a business consultant. I tapered off the amount of uh, clients that I had, uh, that I did consultancy for and um, did more and more personal training. So, you know, when home people uh, were enjoying lunchtime, I was emailing clients. And uh, at home, when I came home at light, uh, also I was emailing clients, so was very, um, very, very uh, busy, hectic. And over time, I was confident that um, I could quit my job. And um, it's actually that I also start traveling then and, because um, I'm a digital nomad, I don't have any home anywhere. We just uh, my girlfriend and I, we travel everywhere. Mm-hmm. As long as we have good quality internet and there are gyms available and supermarkets, then um, we want to explore that place. So we're, we're traveling all over. Uh, but one of the reasons I originally started traveling actually uh, was
2: not just because it's—I think it's awesome—but also um, because you can move to areas with
3: a very low cost of living, so that. Um, We were basically set on being insured, sort of, that even if our whole uh, coaching thing, uh, because my girlfriend actually made the same career switch, um, also went into fitness and started her own company, and we were confident then that even if it was sort of a failure and it would just be kind of a world trip, and then a year later, we we could always go back to our uh,
2: original careers.
1: Nice. Tell us a little bit about the the, the consulting. Like it, many people, like say, uh, uh, I I can't do online. I, I need somebody in person so I can uh, uh, he can like measure me and uh, do a one-on-one training with me. So what it really takes to really make it in online business because many people are skeptical this these days. Yeah, it's definitely not for everyone, and there
3: are people that simply are not potential clients because you do online coaching and they want um, a physical trainer, but I quickly found my niche in uh, evidence-based fitness, that I targeted people like myself, basically, that were very serious about their strength training, were no longer novices. I do coach novices, but it's um, absolutely not the main um, my average clients, basically, so um, you have to make it work and you have to learn how to interpret emails and solve things and very much uh, become an expert in uh, looking at data, that, uh, at least that's how I do it. You can also have a, a more personal approach to Skype sessions and stuff with clients that... I don't do Skype with most of my clients, just email. But you have to look at data patterns, for example, looking at uh, certain exercises and compare the strength ratios and then you can often get a very good idea about uh, how someone's technique is and then with video analysis, for example, you can um, get most of the same benefits you have with uh,
2: physical training and uh, the plus side is that if someone were to
3: hire me for the same amount of time that I uh, am available to my online clients, it would be not affordable for uh, anyone but a tiny portion of the market, so uh, it's the kind of clients I like, they're a bit more advanced, very serious, don't need, you know, uh, their hands held all the time, and um, it also fits my, uh, my style of thinking and uh, my personality.
1: And we're, when we're looking at uh, a fat loss, like many people want to, to really uh, lose uh, body fat and get into tone and shredded body. Uh, so what is it like uh, the mentality of fat loss like how can you overcome unnecessary food addiction or overeating because many people uh, like when they they just start a cut it's really really difficult to them like to stay consistent and they overheat so how can you really switch that in your mind and really be okay now i'm going to to eat less yeah, that,
3: that's a very broad topic. Uh, diving psychology is um, something I was one of the few areas where I can actually apply many of the things I learned at college, uh, because I practically have a psychology degree, uh, behavioral psychology, even though more, even more specifically aimed at weight loss. And that's an area where a lot of people think uh, that are um, familiar with exercise science and nutritional sciences and they can readily see that science is applicable in those areas, but they don't see that in more, you know, fuzzy fields like psychology. You also have scientific research, and there is actually a lot of um, great wealth of literature on kind of behavioral changes um, to make and how you can make people act in certain ways uh, that are more or less successful. So, uh, one thing that I personally really like as an overall kind of mindset, is that I think of dieting as exchanging foods for leanness. So as I progress in a diet, the leaner I get, the more foods I exchange and the leaner I can become. Because you can you can still eat those foods and that's the whole if it fits your macros mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you can eat whatever you want as long as you fill your macros. But it doesn't work for most people at least. So the math simply doesn't add up. If you eat a big portion of ice cream and you're in contest prep, then you are often going to be hungry no matter what you eat for the rest of the day. So uh, you can do it, but it's often simply not worth it, and it tends to result in, um, in bad scenarios, the most common of which is hunger. of people have this idea that dieting should be accompanied uh, with hunger, like it's a normal thing, being regularly hungry. Uh, but then I always ask my clients, You know, this is not something you do once and then uh, you're done and you're going to bulk at you know, double the energy intake again. You should think about how are you going to keep this up, not just for months, but for life, because most people, you know, they're interested, uh, at least the non-competitors, when you're not in contest prep, they're interested in maintaining six-pack abs or a satellite-free body,
2: Mm -hmm. not just for summer months, but year-round, and that's with cardio
3: and being hungry, if you ask them, you know, do you plan on keeping this up for not just a few weeks, or a few months, but years? And then it's, you know, people quickly realize that being hungry or doing two hours of cardio a day to get to that leaner weight are just non sustainable diet practices.
1: Yes, and uh, many people like just do a crash diet and going too many, too much low in uh, their calories and putting themselves in so many deficits and the the funny thing is that uh, at, uh, today's world we all know this is not something that's good to do but still people are doing this because it's that mentality that okay if I do more or uh, if I push myself harder, then I will see uh, quicker results right? Yeah exactly
3: and the funny thing is the, word, the whole word diet as exactly as you Say it has become associated with this short period where you sort of throw your life around and you suffer, and then as, a, as, a, um, you know, as a result of your sacrifice, you gain the body you want at least, you know, for
2: a certain period. Mm-hmm. But
3: originally, the, the word diet comes. It came from the Greek. Uh, if you look at the, the etymology of the word, and it actually meant uh, I could, the aita is how you pronounce it, it actually meant. Uh, way of life. So the whole word "diet" uh, has never originally had the connotation that it now has. Uh, it basically meant the same as lifestyle. Although, ironically, then the, the coaches that sort of got that and now call themselves lifestyle coaches are often the
2: you know the non, absolutely not evidence-based kind of coaches uh, they are uh, really kind
3: of more fuzzy and focused on the. Uh, Uh,
1: tonal science. Um, If we talk about stress, so uh, a lot of people like are very stressful and uh, the stress make them eat more or their cortisol levels are much higher than what it needs to be. So how can you really control it if we're looking at uh, the natural uh, things to do? Like I don't want to take pills or something that uh, will call me.
3: Stress management is actually a pretty important part, I think, of coaching this really uh, underrated. I actually have extensive uh, guides on stress management that I send to my clients who have trouble with this because uh, many people think this you know nutrition, exercise, those are key, and you know, stress, maybe it matters, but probably they don't really believe it. But if you look at the research, uh, we can actually find that uh, types of stress, even just a work-related stress or acute psychological stress, they can cut your recovery capacity from a workout in half, wow. so it literally takes twice as long to recover from a hard squat session for example, if you are experiencing a psychological stress, so say um, you have morning workouts, you do every squat workout, and that day at the office is really stressful, not just Um, Or purely psychologically, right? There's not not nothing physically is demanded of you. It's just that uh, your boss is whining at you, and your performance review, and it didn't go well, and you have a pet line coming up, that kind of stuff. So that actually doubles your recovery need compared to normal. And we also have some research that I think hasn't been published yet, um, but that shows that um, in students, higher academic stress periods are associated with reduced strength development and reduced muscle growth. So, it's actually a very important topic. Um, And one of the big things I'd say in terms of stress is that you want to tackle your problems and in psychology this is called um, the difference between active and passive coping and sometimes called uh, avoidant or facing coping. A lot of people sort of shy away from their problems, or they resolve to do something like uh, their diet to eat a lot or make themselves happier in some other way. Um, But it's a band-aid approach. It doesn't really take care of the problem, and as a result, um, it's a very temporary solution. So one of the most important things that sounds really simple and it's really easy to say, but it's actually, for a lot of people, very difficult to implement, is that you actually have to solve your problems. So, this whole idea of stress management or, um, you know, these fancy things about how you cope with it. I think the solution is often that you don't want to really cope with it or manage it. You want to just solve
2: the problem. That's one of the first things to do. Mm -hmm. And another thing, especially in our current society, is that um, you want to have periods in your life where
3: you have low and high stress that's the natural state of, uh, or at least the state that we evolved in, that kind of environment. So what you see in animals and elite athletes, they tend to cope with stress better in the sense that they have high stress peaks, but then afterwards uh, they have very low cortisol levels and don't experience much stress anymore. So uh, this is also useful if you combine it with what I just said, facing the problem head on, because then stress is actually a very good thing. Um, And for fat
2: loss, in principle, the effects of cortisol are actually beneficial
3: because it mobilizes energy. Cortisol uh, makes you aroused and active and um, actually increases fat oxidation and mobilizes fuel. So it's not um, something that should make you fat. It's only when cortisol becomes chronically elevated that it actually tends to reverse in function and becomes detrimental. Um, your weight loss by
1: reducing energy expenditure, and impairing nutrient partitioning. And when talking about uh, gaining muscle, does uh, stress uh, can affect it?
3: Yes, absolutely, that's um, the research I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. I think there are two studies, Um, I think one of them has been published and the other one hasn't yet, that show that it actually impairs muscle growth long term. And it also
2: makes a lot of sense because if you're not recovering as well, and uh, you cannot have the same
3: uh, performance during your workouts, then that will indirectly also hamper muscle
1: growth. When we're talking about muscle muscle imbalance, so many people has like uh, small calves or uh, small shoulders or chest. So, does that really a genetic thing, or you can overcome genetic and really uh, make a difference in your small uh, muscles and actually gain more muscle there?
3: Yeah, there is definitely a genetic component, but it's absolutely not the case that you can't do anything about it. In terms of uh, muscle balance, the first thing uh, when a client says, for example, I have underdeveloped biceps or, you know, a pecs or whatever, the first thing you want to do is you want to objectively assess if it really is a muscle imbalance or if it's just the client's perception Muscle balance because uh, often the case is actually not that people really have that kind of muscle imbalance. Mm-hmm. For example, guys often think that their arms are small yes. or their chest is small, but you almost never hear guys say, you know, I have underdeveloped traps or underdeveloped mm-hmm. glutes or hamstrings, mm-hmm. even though uh, that is actually a lot more often the case, especially in people that are on a more typical pro program. They really neglect uh, the posterior chain muscle groups. And they overemphasize biceps and pecs, and those are also the muscle groups they've been training for the longest period. So uh, the first thing you want to do is objectively assess this. And what I do is I uh, build a calculator that is based on the work of uh, what it's called is the guy that published the research on predicting your maximum muscular potential. Mm-hmm. But Casey Butt, that's his name,
2: and uh, he also had. Uh, ratios that he looked at in elite natural
3: athletes over time, also from the pre-steroid era, so it's not confounded by uh, steroid use. And um, you can use those ratios. I also published some of them in my article about uh, three reasons your calves aren't growing because the calves are really notorious body part. In this sense, um, that you have, to, you can look at these ratios and you can calculate relative development scores. So you can, for example, see uh, like in a calf article, I talk about um, elite athletes, generally at the advanced level, having equal ratios roughly uh, between their circumference of the neck, the wrists, uh, or the neck, the arms, and the calves, not the wrists.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So um, if you notice that, for example, your arms are a lot smaller than your calves, then yes, you probably have underdeveloped arms, uh, at least as a guy, because uh, the ratios are different for women. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, then you have good reason to actually target that body part more and one of the things um, that is most important I think in targeting underdeveloped body parts is prioritizing them in your exercise sessions, for example for the calves.
2: Uh, a lot of people say, oh my calves never grow no matter what I do, mm-hmm. but they
3: always do the calf workouts as sort of an afterthought after their yes. uh, last leg work, for example. So. They're, on the one hand they're complaining about their calves not growing. On the other hand, they're never really prioritizing their calves because they're they're stuck in this idea that uh, you know you have to start your workouts with heavy compound work and only then can you move to isolation work.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So actually, priority is really important to target and develop body parts.
1: And what do you think about like uh, super setting and drop setting and all of this kind of technique? Like uh, does this all of this has any place in a, a good uh, program?
3: Uh, it, they definitely can, uh, but they're very different. Uh, for example, supersets. It also depends on the type of supersets. The main benefit is simply that it saves time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're doing two exercises back-to-back without any rest. Uh, the problem is that often when you do this in like serious trainees that have Uh, several years of strength experience that are actually strong then work capacity suffers. And we don't really see this in the research, but it's just so obvious if you actually lift. In some research they have actually found that stringing together leg presses and squats, for example, does not uh, negatively affect work capacity. So they're actually saying that if you're doing squats right after leg presses, you can do just as many reps as if you do the squats first. Mm -hmm. which is just ridiculous if, you know, you actually Mm left. So, um, in more advanced lifters, I generally like what I call paired sets, which are basically supersets, but you allow rest between them. So you do alternate between exercises, kind of like circuit training, but you don't do them back-to-back. The only exception uh, where I do like supersets is antagonist supersets, because those are actually beneficial to increase work capacity, for example, If you pair together uh, bench presses and bench rows, Mm -hmm. which are opposing muscle uh, movement patterns, then you generally find that you have increased muscle activation levels and increased repetition performance during the rows. Because uh, the antagonists during the rows, which in this case are the packs, for example, uh, they are fatigued and they don't, um, by a mechanism that is still largely unknown, they don't limit the performance of the uh, lats and even the biceps as much, which is very interesting because it's, it's not just restricted to uh, the actually opposing uh, muscle groups, it's the whole exercise that benefits from it.
1: And uh, yeah. when we're talking about like uh, maximum uh, potential, naturally, because uh, as we all uh, like, uh, when we the more we lift and the more we train, so it's really harder for us to, to actually gain more muscle, so okay. how can we really know that, okay, that's it, I got to my maximum potential and I can no longer gain more muscle? Is that possible to like stop gaining any muscle? Um,
3: that's a really good question, actually. It's commonly um, hypothesized, is the right word, that there is something like a netting max, right, a natural muscular potential. And there are some formulas and research that seem to indicate this, but uh, like the Casey Butt formulas, I reference those on my website as well, so uh, you can check that out. Both people find that very interesting to see, you know, what their maximum muscular potential is. Mm-hmm.
2: But um, you cannot ever really know, and this is also something I
3: personally um, have struggled with for a long time, in that um, I, to the best of my measurements. Uh, I think it was a year, two years ago now. I did everything possible to get the absolute best measurements two years in a row for two weeks straight, having the same kind of uh, fluid balance, same carbohydrate intake, being at the exact same uh, levels of various skin folds, for example. And then I concluded, uh, based on those measurements, that over that year I had gained one pound of muscle mass.
1: Mm. So in one year.
3: Yeah, so that's, depending on your perspective, that's either terrible or yeah, really good. It but sucks. I was really happy with it.
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, if, if you're training a lot of time, so uh, it's, it's good.
3: Yeah, so I, I expected zero, basically, because I thought at that time I was at my natural muscular potential, mm-hmm. uh, which is why I, I did the tests. Uh, but I still grew, and i have not the kind of
2: testing since. Uh, but I think I've I've progressed a little bit. I like, uh, at least
3: in strength, I've set some PRs and different exercises, and I think I appear a little bit bigger, at least um, I may, I manage to retain a bit more muscle mass when I diet to do shoot or stage condition, so um, I think I'm making a bit more progress, but it's hard to say, it becomes really, really hard to say, you're really looking at years when you've got an elite level trainee, but the thing is, the only way to find out is to try, so a lot of people struggle with this, and I think the best scenario really is not to think about this, because it's, it's really demotivational, yes. and I, I personally, uh, especially in the same way with going to the gym, you don't want to think about whether you should go to the gym every time, every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should just go make it a routine, fit it into your lifestyle, you've decided that this is a lifestyle that is good for you In many ways, you know, going to the gym, uh, makes you happier, it improves cognitive functioning, uh, you can eat more, um, most people feel better after their workouts or at least uh, an hour or so after, after they have uh, rested a bit. So it's good to do but you're not always motivated at that time and I, I think it's best not to think about these things uh, too much and just just do it as Nike says.
1: Mm-hmm. And do it, And when you're still trying to like gain muscle, like, uh, there are some people that, okay, I am, I, uh, just finished the cut and I'm like seven or 8% body fat. And now that I'm, uh, starting to gain more, uh, uh, muscle and, uh, again, weight. So if like, let's just say in uh, one or two weeks, I screw things up and I gain like, uh, two or three pounds. So what I, I need to do like, again, a little bit of cut and then again, uh, another, like, uh, a calorie surplus, and again, calorie deficit, so how can I balance it?
3: Yeah, you can do various things, uh, but generally, when uh, clients uh, mess up, basically, they, they lose control, mm-hmm. or they deliberately have cheat days, um, or go on holiday, for example, and are yes. deliberately lenient, they gain some fat, uh, whatever the scenario, what I, what I often recommend, is if the goal is still fat loss afterwards, and usually <laughs> it is or even becomes fat loss, because after some fat gain, people are usually extra motivated to lose fat, uh, because it seems like they gain a lot of fat, even though you know it's maybe it's just
2: 2% body fat, mm-hmm. um, which they were actually still very much leaner than they
3: were at the start of the cut. Uh, but anyway, people are motivated, so I generally recommend just getting back in your routine and following the same program, just continuing as if nothing happened. You can make some adjustments, uh, and you should tweak the diet a bit because their metabolism often will have changed. Their energy expenditure may be a bit higher, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, those are that's fine-tuning. And in big-picture mindset, I like people to just go back into their routine and keep progressing because the whole reason that um, they messed up often is because they didn't have... A good routine or a sustainable program that they were working on so if you start making all these adjustments and you uh, keep changing things even though uh, they were working then or at least that part of the program was working that actually prevents people from forming the right habits uh, building a good routine and getting into a program that is sustainable for them so
1: but uh, if, if we look at the, uh, like, changing uh, exercise selection, is it okay to change every, like, four or eight weeks? Because many people just get bored. Like, ah, I, I can't do, like, squat and bench or deadlift every every single week. I I, I got to switch things up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the,
3: you can definitely switch things up purely for psychological reasons. Sometimes people just get bored with an exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, that's as good a good reason as any because if people are not motivated to do the exercise and give, uh, give it all they got, then that in, it, in itself will limit progress. So then it might actually be physiologically optimal as well to change the exercise. Uh, but in terms of just changing exercises, I'm not a fan at all of... Uh, doing this at arbitrary time, so this, you know, the, the rule of every four weeks you change your exercises or every eight weeks.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't have any such rule. Um, for example, if someone's making great progression on their squat, and they love doing their squats, I see no reason why at four weeks into the program, you should just switch it up just because you should milk that progress and make sure that they continue progressing on it. I think Um, Exercise switching too often is actually one way why uh, personal trainers and clients, personal trainers uh, sometimes deliberately, but clients often, uh, intentionally they fake their own progress because as soon as things get hard in a program, they switch it, and then when they come back to it later, they find that they plateau at the same uh, reps and weights for the squat, for example. So they don't really make any long-term progress. And I think that uh, the kind of program hopping can be really detrimental. So you have to be more strategic with the uh, changes you make, not just for exercise selection. but This actually goes for almost all kind of uh, program changes.
1: I also wanted to ask you about uh, what's your take on uh, intermediate fasting because lately in the past two or three years, I believe, uh, there was a lot of... uh, that talk about uh, intermediate fasting and how fasting uh, can really uh, help us uh, with our uh, uh, function. Does intermediate fasting get any benefits in fat loss or gaining muscle?
3: I think intermittent fasting um, often it doesn't really convey any special benefits. It's just um, a tool you have in your toolbox basically and for some people uh, like research shows that people with certain personality traits tend to uh, find intermittent fasting diets more sustainable, whereas other people, uh, for example, one such personality trait is compulsivity. People are compulsive. They often don't do well on intermittent fasting programs, and they do better uh, with a higher meal frequency and having breakfast uh, soon um, after awakening. There are also a few um, possible downsides in scenarios where it, with intermittent fasting is not recommended, um, one of which is, which I think is kind of obvious, but it's still kind quite, of quite controversial. Um, I'm not a fan of fasted training at all, and mm-hmm. research uh, also favors this, that you cannot maximize protein balance uh, if you train completely fasted, and especially not if you train uh, fasted in the morning, for example, and then you only start eating uh, later in the day, so at 4 p.m. or so, if you train right during your um, fasting window, there's also some indications that uh, people with insulin resistance, especially overweight individuals, and obese individuals, actually lose more fat if they have uh, an early breakfast. And uh, of course, this doesn't mean, mean you can do intermittent fasting because um, you know Martin Berkman popularized the term intermittent fasting, and then. Therefore, people associated with lean gains, intermittent fasting, which is basically uh, skipping breakfast consistently. That's really all it comes down to. But you can also do it in fasting later in the day, which uh, researchers then call um, time-restricted hmm. energy restriction or something like that, uh, depending on the study you look at. So most people have actually practice some form of intermittent fasting uh, already. For example. A common scenario that I,
2: um,
3: I give in my PT course if you've got an individual that has their dinner at 6 p.m. at night and um, uh, they wake up the next day and they have their breakfast at 8 a.m. That's sort of a normal scenario, most people would say. But if you have another individual that has their last meal directly before going to bed at 12 o'clock and then they have their next meal only at 12 um, at lunchtime then that person is actually fasting for only 12 hours compared to 14 hours for the average person. So the average person with the dinner at 6 and breakfast at 8 actually does intermittent fasting for two hours longer than the person that did the intermittent morning fasting. So you really want to look at the objective uh, time, uh, when they're fasting and how long they're fasting, and not just you know if they're skipping breakfast or not. Because uh, by definition, the word breakfast, means breaking the fast, so mm-hmm. everyone has breakfast just at different
2: times,
1: technically speaking. But how, how many, how much hours do you actually need in order to be in that fasting zone? Like, it, does six or eight hours it's uh, enough, or you need to be like 10, 12?
3: Mm-hmm. It depends on uh, your last meal, uh, and what you really mean by the, the fasted condition, because there are um, most of the benefits of being in that fasted state um, are actually not really benefits, and there's definitely points where you're overdoing it. As some research shows, for example, that mTOR, which is a form of uh, anabolic signaling, basically uh, um, a message that your body sends to um, initiate muscle growth to start up the process muscle growth, uh, tends to decrease at about 20 hours into a fast. So that's an indication that it may not be optimal to fast that long, uh, and I'm not a fan, generally, of fasting that long anyway, um, but in terms of what you would consider fasting, it really depends on your last meal um, that you had, because that will determine how long you still have elevated levels of um, fatty acids in the blood, uh, still have elevated blood glucose levels, hyperaminoacidemia, uh, as a general rule, uh, I think some medical practices they give the rule that two hours after a meal uh, you're in the fasted zone, but you're definitely not in the true uh, zone because it's still kind of postprandial. If you look at things like fatty acid elevations, um, and I'd say that most people you're looking at at least six hours after the meal or you're really in the fasted state and uh, blood levels for
1: um, all nutrients have returned to baseline but and uh, like for myself when i uh, started the intermediate fasting and i tried on myself i saw that like uh, i was more focused during the day like i i was not tired but uh, on the other end when i like went to the gym and i trained fasted or something like that then i was super weak and uh, I was overeating when I eat my meals, because I eat like two or three meals, so I overeat. So I think it depends on on the person, no?
3: Yeah, definitely. So like I said, some people just uh, psychologically react a lot better to it than others. And um, same for the energy level during the day, because what you say, a lot of people actually experience that, myself included. Mm. I am more productive early in the mornings uh, when I have to work and I'm fasted. If I have a large meal, uh, I get what the research is called um, postprandial somnolence, which basically means becoming sleepy after having consumed a meal. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's this idea that you know you consume food and food contains energy, and therefore you also get more mental energy. But it's just an unfortunate uh, thing in the English language that we use the word energy to um, refer both to cognitive functioning to how well your mind functions, and to physical energy, which is just, you know, calories in the nutritional sciences. So, often you actually find that people, after a meal, especially very large meals, they become more tired compared to before. So, this this idea of um, food giving you energy often doesn't really work in practice.
1: Yeah, because your body is uh, absorbing a lot of uh, food. So it gets you tired, no?
3: Yeah, basically the, the central nervous system goes into a rest and digest mode. This is called parasympathetic dominance mm-hmm. compared to sympathetic dominance, which is more kind of fight or flight mode. So after you've eaten, the body is indeed it's digesting nutrients and it wants you to just calm down, relax, sit down. You've eaten, you're nourished, you don't have to do anything. Compared to if you're fasting, then you actually... From an evolutionary point of view, you have to be motivated, you know, to go find food. So you have to be active.
1: In the fitness industry, there are so many supplements. You need protein, you need uh, multivitamin, vitamin C, fish oils, and so many stuff. So how can the the regular person who is just uh, maybe uh, six months or one year or maybe even more, how can you really know what supplements does you really need to take?
3: Yeah, this um, that's a good question. I think there's no such thing as a supplement you need to take. Um, like in my PT course, I intentionally I categorize supplements, um, which is a really long list in terms of their potential uses and how often I recommend them. I intentionally have a blank page for uh, the category supplements you should always take mm-hmm. because there's no such thing. Certain supplements are useful in certain situations for certain people. There's no such thing as a supplement everyone should be taking. Um, unfortunately, that kind of magic pill simply hasn't been found yet, in contrast to what you know, the supplement industry will have you believe. Um, there's, there's really no such thing as an essential supplement. Uh, but some supplements that are really useful, um, I do um, often stress the importance of micronutrition. I think it's highly underrated, uh, vitamin D levels, for example. Certain people can be deficient in, depending on where you live on the planet and your skin color. Mm -hmm. And then if you're deficient in vitamin D, then it can actually increase strength. And I think muscle growth as well. I'm not sure if there's a direct study on that. Uh, I think only meta-analytic work. But uh, magnesium, same story, can increase testosterone levels, strength development. Uh, Zinc has been found to um, have a significant effect actually on your energy expenditure if you are deficient in it. So you don't need to mega-dose any of those things, but you do need to ensure that you're not deficient. So you want to look at the diet, uh, and especially if you're on a more extreme kind of diet, if you're really low-carb or really low-fat or vegetarian or ketogenic. Those diets tend to have um, be more prone towards being deficient in certain nutrients, and then you want to supplement those. But if your diet is really good all around uh, whole foods and you're covered for all nutrients, then you don't need to supplement them. Uh, creatine... Mono-hybrid, uh has been proven to be very uh, effective and basically being a, as good as it gets kind of supplement for many people, um, but not everyone is a responder. So there's actually a responder continuum, some people don't respond to it at all because their body already produces enough uh, creatine itself, so there's no point in supplementing for them either. Um, I personally take melatonin because I actually have insomnia. and. Um, My body doesn't produce enough of it itself, but if I supplement it, I have no trouble um, becoming sleepy at night and sleeping well. So then again, other people don't need to take this if they have no trouble falling asleep. Caffeine is one that um, is beneficial for a lot of people, although it's um, often abused. If you use too much of it, you lose the effect, so you have to use it strategically. And again, it's not as effective as many people think, because most of the the effects are psychological, so it seems more effective than it really is. It doesn't really um, work wonders um, for your performance, it just feels that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Fish oil can be really useful, depending on the omega-3 content of the diet, um, and the type of fish oil, because actually a lot of fish oil supplements have gone bansit. Uh, They don't contain nearly the amount of omega-3 on the label, and um, because the omega-3 acids are not readily bioavailable because they're in a poor form, they have been uh, esterified, for example, um, and they've gone rancid, then they're actually doing more harm than good by creating rather than decreasing your inflammation levels. Um, I think that's it for the supplements that are, uh, for almost everyone, at least worth considering. And then you have lots of supplements that have kind of niche rules and stimulants that some people like to take. But
1: again, none of them are essential. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last que- question that I wanted to ask you, uh, that I ask a lot of people, is what would be the legacy uh, that you would like to live after uh, you would no longer be in this world? Because many of us uh, want to live something more after than... Uh, we will be here, right? So, what will be your legacy?
3: I guess the first thing uh, to think about then would be uh, children, but I don't have any children yet. I'm not Mm -hmm. planning on having anyone soon either uh, because it it doesn't fit my traveling lifestyle, and there's no rush. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in this case, I'm actually going to go with uh, Beijing bodybuilding, Um, the the method I created and creating that more... um, Making that a company is what I'm basically doing now that, um, at least in theory, should still be able to function after I'm gone. So ideally, um, it would still work, there would be a team behind it still publishing articles, the PT course would still remain a certification program that people uh, can do and it will become something that it will become the industry standard, for example. Um, Websites should stay up, should be new content and um, i think that would be nice mm-hmm. although you know when i'm dead i i don't really care anymore i guess mm-hmm. but i think it's good to think about the, um, uh, the company that way
1: so and so where can we find you uh, in social media and, uh, and your w- website
3: sure yeah uh, my website is uh manohanselmonds.com my name will also get you there mm-hmm. uh, i'm on facebook twitter Instagram, actually, we we just uh, sort of launched pretty much every social media channel uh, we can think of, so we're trying uh, what's popular, and we're going to be there as well. Um, You can probably find the links on your page, so I recommend you um, get to Leaders page if you're interested, and you can have a
1: look. That's awesome, man. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I really appreciate it. I believe uh, a lot of people will take uh, some notes, and because you you brought us a lot of value in this uh, interview, so I really thank you very much for your time.
0: My pleasure. Nice talking to you. If you enjoyed this interview or any other one from the Mind Body Podcast, feel free to subscribe to my podcast at iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and at my YouTube channel. Also. Free to share this podcast on Instagram by tagging the Mind Body Podcast. Do you want to be a part of the MindBody Podcast? So remember the Fast Factor. The Fast Factor stands for one Facebook. Become a part of the Mind Body Podcast community by joining our Facebook community just by searching on Facebook the Mind Body Podcast community. Number 2, act. Don't just be a passive listener. Act upon what you've just learned by applying one simple thing from any episode or interview. 3. Subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or if you're visual like me, then just search the Body podcast on YouTube. And number four, train others. Cause just like I always says, leaders create leaders and you're all here to grow together. And by training others, you're training yourself. So this is the fast factor. Remember it. Facebook, act subscribe and train others oh and please feel free to leave a review which will engage all your vac senses and the vac senses stands for visual auditory and kinesthetic which when you use all the three combined you remember stuff much better for more information about my coaching public speaking and taking your mind and body to all new levels check my site at lidodayan.com Till then, never, ever forget to smile. See you soon.